Well, thank you, Joel and Campbell, for leading us in musical praise this morning. And now we turn our attention to studying God's Word. And many of you know that we are just beginning a study in the book of Exodus and walking through the book of Exodus together in these summer months that we're together. So I want you to remember with me where we started last week and what we said about this book so far. Remember me with me what the first 18 chapters of this book are really all about and what they emphasize. They emphasize who is our God. Now the whole book is telling us who our God is, first 18 chapters, and then how do we respond to that God, chapters 19 through 40. But these first 18 chapters, over and over, all throughout these chapters are saying, who is this God that we must respond to? Who is he? And in these chapters, we will learn that God is our redeemer and he is our provider. Those two characteristics will be highlighted throughout these first 18 chapters. God is our redeemer and he is our provider. And last week, we saw in the lives of the Israelites in Egypt that God is our redeemer who is always present with his people. He's always present. Now, that might have been hard to see if you just casually read through the first chapter, but it begs the question as you're walking through those verses, where is God in the midst of all of this prosperity, in all of this pain, and even in the provision that God does make? Where is he? Because his name is not really mentioned throughout the chapter, but you see him. He's present within all of the prosperity they have, all of the pain that they experience, and even in the provision that is brought to them, God is always present with his people. This week, we're going to be introduced to the human tool that God will use to redeem Israel, namely Moses. We could say that chapter two is not merely our introduction to Moses, it is actually the making of a deliverer. The background of Israel's greatest and most pivotal leader, Moses, the man that God would use to deliver Israel, the man that God would use to provide for Israel, the man that God would use to actually reveal to them all of the ways in which they would need to respond to that God is Moses. If you are a reader of biographies, you know every good biography has significant portion of material spent within it to examine all of the beginning days of that pivotal person. Their background, their heritage, their parentage, their birth, their upbringing, their early adult years that prepare them to be the influential person that they eventually would become. We see something similar here in Exodus 2 of Moses. This is the making of a deliverer. This is the pedigree, as it were, of Israel's most consequential deliverer. And it is fascinating to see this pedigree. You say, well, is he more important than Abraham? Is he more significant than Joseph, who we saw the latter portion of Genesis? I think so. I think so. Everything that we know about Abraham and everything we know about Joseph comes through the writings of Moses. Every Old Testament writer after the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote Every Old Testament writer is basically commenting on the first five books of the Bible. 
Every New Testament book refers back to what Moses wrote in these first five books. He is the most consequential, pivotal leader in Israel's history. Now, there's much more we could say and recount about the life and legacy of Moses that touches even our own faith in Jesus Christ, but we're going to begin this morning where the Bible begins and consider the pedigree, the background that gives him all of the credentials needed to be the human tool that God would use to deliver Israel, provide for Israel, and even show them how to respond to God. So Moses' pedigree, as we'll see, possesses everything necessary to best prepare him to be God's deliverer of God's people. So what is it about this pedigree? What do we see here? What's emphasized? And this is not a comprehensive look at everything that you could say about the beginning days of Moses. It highlights just snapshots. We'd be here all day. I mean, you're going to feel like we're here all day, but we could be here all day if we looked at everything. And the Lord hasn't told us everything about the early days of Moses, just highlighting certain things. So what, what is highlighted here about Moses' life so that you and I would see this, these are the consequential details that we must see that makes him the man that he is, that God would use. Well, we're going to walk through five marks of Moses' pedigree that providentially prepared him to be Israel's great deliverer. Just five different marks of Moses' pedigree that providentially prepare him to be Israel's deliverer. That's what chapter two is all about. So let's walk through them together. Let's look at the first mark of Moses' pedigree that shows him to be Israel's deliverer. What is that? It's his birth. It's real simple. His birth. That's the first mark of his pedigree. We begin with Moses' life like any good biography would, his birth and even the background of his birth. What is it about the birth of Moses that will be so significant for his future role as Israel's deliverer? Well, what would we consider about his birth that makes him so significant? Well, the first thing I want you to notice that the writer, Moses himself, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, actually tells us about his birth and his background And what he emphasizes here is his priestly heritage. Look at verse 1. It's his priestly heritage. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. Now that might be a sentence that you just tossed away as inconsequential, but it is absolutely crucial to who this man is. Notice, we we are not given the names of Moses' parents. We're not told their names. We're only told the tribe from which they came. They're anonymous here. And what tribe did they come from? Levi. Which would later become the tribe that God would use as an intermediary between himself and the people. The tribe of Levi would become the priestly tribe. That's actually what's emphasized here for you. When you hear Moses, you hear he's the mediator. He's the go-between between God and the people. That's what's emphasized even before he's born. He's from the tribe of Levi. I mean, right in the beginning, though God isn't mentioned, is God present? <laughs> Absolutely, he is. 
He's absolutely present. He's everywhere. There's, there's no random births anywhere at any time. It's not just random. It's not just happenstance or circumstantial. Now, how many of you have imperfect parents? My kids do. I had imperfect parents. You do too. You know that. And matter of fact, you could recount their imperfections. And some of you have really grievous imperfections that you think about. I'm sure Moses' parents were imperfect. I'm sure that, and we see Moses was born at a very imperfect time in Israel's history. Very sad and difficult time. But these are the voices that God wanted Moses to hear in the beginning. These are the parents that he ordained from the very beginning that he would have. Moses would have the specific heritage that God ordained him to have to prepare him to be the very man that God would use. You need to think about that. It's not random, the family that raised you. It's not random that you have the parents that you do. This is the consequential, sovereign purpose of God. You don't know all the details. You cannot imagine all of the details behind it. But there's nothing random about it. You could live angrily if you want. You could hate what God has given you. And maybe there are sins in parents that deserve anger. But if you're hating what God has done rather than learning from it, you'll miss to see what God is doing to prepare you for how he wants you to use you. His heritage was a priestly heritage and that was by the design of God. Another mark that we look at when we see Moses' birth is his physical beauty. Verse two, the woman conceived and bore a son And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Again, did you notice Moses' mother is not named here? Eventually she will be named in chapter 6 as well as his father, but not here because that's not the focal point. What also is not mentioned here is that uh, if you just read this, you would think Moses was a firstborn, but we learn later he's not, is he? He has an older sister, Miriam, elder brother, Aaron, but that's not the focal point here either. The woman conceived. And in light of what we looked at last week, what is so consequential about this next phrase? And bore a son. She bore a son. What's so important with that? Well, what was the command in Egypt? What was the decree over all the land? There was a national abortion policy that any male child... Born to any Jewish woman in any Jewish family should be thrown into the Nile and destroyed. To keep this powerful nation from further rising up and gaining any kind of dominance in Egypt and perhaps overthrowing Egypt, they were killing all of the male children. And we have no idea how many children would have died in this period, but likely many. And so now this unnamed mother has a son And when she saw that son, the text says, he was beautiful. Now, what parent doesn't think that about their baby? I mean, they're all beautiful, right? 
Now, the word that's translated beautiful here is just the common word that's used throughout the Hebrew text, translated more often as good. He was good. This is just not a description that he wasn't ugly, but there's no defect. He's healthy. He would likely live. There's no sickness in him. He's not weak. And and it's probably even a bit more than that. He was probably striking somehow, uniquely striking in appearance. Hebrews 11, 17, commenting on this says, his parents saw he was beautiful. Not just his mother, but the parents saw that as well. Acts 7, 20. Stephen commenting on this. Stephen actually says he was beautiful to God which may give us some kind of indication here that the mother and the parents of Moses knew somehow that there was something unique and special about this child. Maybe something like we saw with Eve after the death of her son when Cain murdered Abel. She had another child and she believed this child was the seed perhaps that God would use to bring redemption. Or maybe like Noah's family, when they named him, they saw something in him and named him to be a deliverer. There could be something like that. This is a a child of beauty that even God sees beauty in. Something significant about the child. It's a priestly heritage. There's physical beauty. There's also providential protection in his birth. Verse three, but when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Now, I want you to consider the terminology in verse 3 particularly. Almost every word is biblically significant here. When she could hide him no longer, she got and put him in what kind of a basket? A wicker basket, likely papyrus, something that would withstand the water. Made from the reeds along the bank of the Nile, some kind of a papyrus plant that she put together. Don't think of just a basket that has a bunch of holes in it. No, that's not the idea but a basket that she constructed that could uh, withstand the water. But I want you to pay attention to the word basket. Basket might not be the right word. It's the word that we have in our mind that, that seems right, that you'd put a baby in to let float in the water, perhaps if you're trying to keep it from being taken by the Egyptians to drown. But it is the word that's translated in the Old Testament as a box or... It is the same word translated in Genesis 6 to describe the ark. That's not circumstantial either. That's specific. This child, beautiful to God, something unique about him, is now put into a box of safety into the water as if every scene is speaking something about who this child is in the plans of God. Put into an ark and covered with what? Tar and pitch. Though slightly different words than what we find in Genesis when the ark was constructed by Noah. It's the same kind of thought, isn't it? That's not random. That's very specific. That's meant to cause your mind to go back. This baby is someone special, like Noah. 
who preserved his family in the midst of the flood. Here is a baby being preserved in an ark covered with tar and pitch. Where's God? In every single detail. So she put the child into this ark and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Well, she's not throwing her baby into the Nile, is she? No, but she's putting him right on the banks of the crocodile-infested Nile. It's a risk, isn't it? Of course it's a risk. I mean, the risk is having the child. She hid the child for three months. At any point in time that any Egyptian would have known that she had a male child, they could have legally gone in, taken that baby, and thrown it into the Nile River and killed it. (laughs) But she gently puts this baby into this ark of safety, put it by the reed so that it would likely blend in and just trusted that something would happen to preserve this life. She's taking a risk. Verse four, his sister stood by at a distance to find out. That's literally that word find out is the word to know. To know what would happen to him. She didn't know. But she wanted to know what would happen. Now later we're told this sister's name is Miriam, but she's not mentioned here either. She's just a a sister who doesn't know I want you to keep that in mind because it's going to show up later in this chapter. Again, you would pass through these things as if they're just random events in the birth of a common baby. Random events, my friends, do not exist in this universe. As R.C. Sproul liked to say, there's not a random atom in the universe. Your parents, your siblings, your place, the hospital you're born in, down to the very bed you slept in, every detail fits in the sovereign plans of God, highlighting details that mean something in a divine purpose of which maybe you will never know until eternity, but they are purposeful. They certainly mean something in this case, in Moses' life. Brings us to a second mark of Moses' pedigree that prepared him to deliver Israel. It's not just his birth, but it's also his upbringing. That's where we look next, his upbringing. That's covered in verses 5 through 10, his upbringing. These verses begin with Moses' salvation from the Nile, and they end with his development as an Egyptian. Rather fascinating. And again, with all that we are learning of these opening years of Moses' life, not every detail that happened in his life is described, just certain details are highlighted. What are they? What do we learn about his upbringing? Well, we see first an unexpected pity, an unexpected pity in verses 5 through 6. So as the sister is standing at a distance to find out what would happen to him, verse 5 says, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile. Now, what is most likely happening here is not that Pharaoh's daughter is coming down for her daily bath, but she's likely attending some kind of a ritual cleansing at the Nile because the Nile was viewed as a god, the god of life. She's attended by all of her maids. She didn't need all of her maids to take a bath. She would not likely take a bath in public view. And we know it's public view because Miriam is walking along the shores. Likely others are walking along the shores as well, if Miriam is. 
No, this is something specific. In fact, the word bath is used other times in the book of Exodus to describe ritual washings that the Israelites would use. So this is probably some kind of religious event. The daughter of Pharaoh is going down to worship, to cleanse herself ritually for some worship of a pagan god. And then all of the sudden, she saw the basket among the reeds. So I immediately want to know, how did she see it? How was it her, the daughter of Pharaoh that saw it? Not her, not her maids, not anybody who's walking along the banks of the Nile, the daughter of Pharaoh sees it. Where is God? There's not even a random glance in this world. She sees the basket and sends her maid down to get it. I mean, daughter of Pharaoh's not going to go into crocodile waters to get it. She sends her maid down to gain, to gain the basket. In verse 6, when she opened it, she saw the child and the boy was crying. And the next statement, and she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. This is absolutely astounding. Here's a pagan And not just any pagan, the daughter of Pharaoh, the daughter of the Pharaoh who made the decree that every Hebrew child, every Hebrew male child should be thrown into the Nile to drown. And this daughter of Pharaoh happened to see this basket, opened the basket, sees a Hebrew boy. How did she know as a Hebrew boy? It's probably circumcision. There was the sign of the covenant on this child. Now the legal instinct should be to throw this baby into the water and let it drown. Why? Why did she have pity on him? Where is God? God is even moving in what seems like random thoughts within people. Causing them to see and to feel what brings about his good purpose. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? God moved her to pity. God is acting on a human heart in such a way that that person freely acts and accomplishes God's purpose at the same time. Even a momentary expression of common kindness, an unexpected pity, that's not a random chance circumstance. It's what God does. You also see in his upbringing an unlikely provision in verse 7. His sister said to Pharaoh's daughter. Now who spoke to Pharaoh's daughter? Miriam. On the banks of the Nile, this common Hebrew girl hears the daughter of Pharaoh say something. I'm guessing this was public because she, she heard this and she saw the pity taking place and Moses is not cast into the Nile but preserved. And so all of a sudden Miriam steps up, risks her own life at this point and inserts herself and speaks to Pharaoh's daughter. Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women? Likely because the daughter of Pharaoh is not going to nurse a Hebrew baby. That would be 
unclean and likely disgusting for her to do such a thing. And so here Miriam sees the opportunity. Could I go get a random Hebrew mother who's in nursing stage? I think I know one. And Pharaoh's daughter said, go. Why would she say that? Why would she say that? Where is God? Even in this. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Again, she remains nameless. She remains nameless. Then look at verse 9. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, said to the child's mother, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. I'll even provide for you and pay you to do this work. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Moses' mother got to nurse her own child under Pharaoh's household and Pharaoh's protection. A Hebrew boy is protected by Pharaoh's household at a time when every Hebrew child should have been murdered. Where's God? Unexpected, unexpected, unlikely. He even had a unique parentage in verse 10. Do you see it? It's a unique parentage. The child grew and she, that is Moses' mother, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she, Pharaoh's daughter, named him Moses. So he didn't even have a name yet until Pharaoh's daughter took Moses as her own, adopted him as her own son, and then named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Oh, there's so much imagery there as to what's going to come, isn't there, in his name? So he grows. He grew in the ways of the Egyptians, in the wealth of the Egyptians, with the privileges of the Egyptians, avoiding all of the trials of the sons of Israel at the same time. He knew of his father and his mother and his sister and his brother going through the trials of Hebrew slavery, but he had all the privileges of a royal household. Stephen says when he recounts this story in Acts chapter 7 verse 22, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power in words and deeds. It's going to be significant next time. So Moses knew both worlds, raised by his mother, so he obviously knew that he was a Jewish boy, a Hebrew boy. Raised in Pharaoh's household with all the amenities of Pharaoh's household as a son, which means he was likely brother in some way to the Pharaoh he would eventually confront. Where's God in all of this? It's remarkable, isn't it? All of Moses' upbringing was crafted by God specifically. Saved by three distinct unnamed women. His mother, his sister, Pharaoh's daughter. Also that God could raise up this man who would deliver his people, Israel. His birth, his upbringing. Look at a third mark of Moses' pedigree that prepared him to deliver Israel. His adulthood. His adulthood. 
Verse 11, now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up, that he'd grown up, yeah, he grew up. Acts 7.23 says he was reaching the age of 40. That's when you're grown up, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, who said amen? Yeah. He grew up. We skipped all the details about his childhood. There isn't anything about his childhood that we learned, but he was likely educated as the Egyptian, as we saw. But this stage of his adulthood brings out some brief scenes of his adult life. Again, we're not going to cover them all. The writer, Moses, doesn't tell us everything, just highlights a few things. But I want you to see some things about Moses here that maybe are not the most flattering. I mean, you think of Moses and you think, oh, look at his birth and his upbringing. This is one upstanding young man. But I want you to see some things I think are implicit in this text that show he's a flawed man also. What comprises and what's emphasized here about his adulthood? Let me give you a few ideas on that. Verse 11, I think it shows him to be self-important. He sees himself as self-important. Now, maybe you would read verse 11 a little different. It came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And you would say, now, wait a minute. That rage that he begins to feel here, that's probably just. I mean, here's a a Hebrew, his own people being beaten, likely beaten to the point of death by an Egyptian. This is unjust, it's not right. And so this is a righteous indignation, isn't it? Well, I would suggest that perhaps the indignation is righteous, but the response is not. He views himself as somewhat self-important, He had grown up. He's now a man with authority. As Stephen said, he was powerful in words and deeds. And he goes out to his brethren. I don't know if this is the first time that he actually ventured out to go and see specifically. It's the first record we have that he goes out to look at the hard labor, the vicious, violent labors that they are under. He's an Egyptian by position, he's Jewish, he's Hebrew by self-identity, but he sees the Egyptian beating the Hebrew, one of his brethren. What a quandary this would have been to him. He sees someone that he likely outranks because he's of royal household position. And he sees one with whom he is positionally related to as a Hebrew Acts chapter 7, verse 25, Stephen gives us an insight into what was going on in Moses' mind when he saw this. In Acts seven twenty-five, it says, he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. How did he see himself? I'm the deliverer. I'm the deliverer. I'm the beautiful baby. I'm the one that God preserved. I'm the Hebrew who's raised in Pharaoh's household. You ought to know that. You do know that. You know who I am. Don't you see me? I'm the deliverer. I think he has an elevated view of himself here. He thinks he has the right to kill this Egyptian in vengeance. He thinks he has a responsibility to protect the Israelite. All in his own efforts and plans. He's self-important. He's also impulsive. Look at verse 12. So 
He looked this way and that because he knew what he was doing was wrong. He looked this way and that. And when he saw, he saw there was no one around. He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He never considers the ramifications of his actions. He doesn't consider a more measured plan to address the greater issue of Israel's slavery. He is emotionally overtaken by the moment. And how often does that go over well when your emotions just kind of run everything and you just run on raw emotion? Does that go over well for you most of the time when you don't use your brain to think something through? I think this shows us too, Moses is likely a very formidable person physically. He kills an Egyptian with his own hands, digs a grave in the sand and buries him so no one can notice. All on his own. Nothing is said about the Israelite that he rescued him from the beating. That one who was rescued, what do you think he went and did? Well, how else would anyone know what happened in that scene if that rescued Hebrew did not tell everyone else what Moses did? He's the only witness. Here's Moses. He just felt the desire to act and he acted. He acted in rage, in rage and indignation. Maybe some sense of protection and identification with his people, but nonetheless, he murdered a man. There's no dialogue. There's no ordering this man whom he outranks to stop what he's doing. He could have done that. He just acted. He acted impulsively. How's that for a pedigree of a deliverer? Well, it gets better. He's also idealistic. He's idealistic in verse 13. He went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? Maybe it's just a day later. We don't know the conversation that was going on. We do know that two Hebrews are battling one another. They're entangled with one another, as one text would say in the New Testament. Not just arguing, they are actually in a physical battle with one another. Why are you striking your companion? This is not friendly competition between brothers. This appears to Moses to be a murderous intent. And he intervenes. He sees himself as the preserver, the deliverer, the one to preserve Israel. He'd just shown them that. Certainly they now see it, don't they? This is the man to save us. But they don't see it that way, do they? Verse 14, who made you a prince or judge over us? They, they don't respond well to this. He's idealistic. He just assumes everybody's going to see me as who I am. And they don't. Another element of his adulthood we see here is his uh, insecurity. He's insecure. What's he do in verse 14? When they say, who made you a prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. The only thing he could think about was not a response to say, no, friend, that's not it at all. 
Let's look at what God has been doing. Let's look at where I am, where God has brought us. This is the time. Don't you remember the prophecy that God gave to Abraham 400 years? We're there. It's time. I'm not in this place for nothing. He didn't have any of that conversation. He did not repoint those two Hebrew men back to God and his purposes. Where did he go when those men responded as they did? Inward. Inward. Self-protection. Oh, it's known. Someone ratted on me. That guy I saved. He told all these people. Now they think I'm not a deliverer. They think I'm an opportunist. Who made you a judge or prince? Those are the same words used to describe the title of taskmaster that Pharaoh used to put over the Israelite people. Who made you the taskmaster? You think you're going to rule over us now? They totally missed it, didn't they? But that's how they saw it. You're just an opportunist. You and your little privileged position, you got your life saved and some of our brothers were killed, thrown into the Nile and who do you think you are? You want to rule over us now? Is that what you want? He just wants to save them. If this is their attitude, all he can think about is running. He's insecure. The matter's become known. It's known. They didn't see Moses as one of them. And Moses, in his insecurity, flees. I would suggest that Moses' self-importance, his impulsiveness, his idealism, his insecurities, those likely wouldn't play well on a list on your resume if you're going to send it in for a position for deliverer. Is that what you would want to see? Probably not. Why would you highlight those kinds of things in The Great Deliverer? Well, think about who's writing about these insecurities. (laughs) Moses is saying this about himself. What author likes to highlight their weaknesses in an autobiography? How often do you proclaim your weaknesses unless you're using them to try to gain some view of strength from someone? Moses is writing this to say, this is who I was. This is who I was in this land. This is what was going on at this time. And it could be that God may do the same with us in our weaknesses. Let us learn some of the hard lessons that our sin might teach us in order to prepare us to be a person to be used for his purposes more significantly. The reality is the emphasis when we're talking about Moses is not just Moses. Where is God? God is going to use him despite himself, isn't he? So his early years of adulthood were not his best years. In fact, Moses had the kind of personality that was actually going to take decades to change. But God was present. Brings us to a fourth mark of Moses' pedigree that prepared him to deliver Israel. A fourth mark. Verse 16 Actually, back up to verse 15, just to catch the scene. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, and Moses fled. Fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. Now, where's Midian? Well, Midian is due east. It's south of 
place called Edom. Edom is just southeast of the land of Canaan. So he's, he's east of Egypt and southeast from the promised land. Isn't that interesting? When Moses fled, he did not flee to the land of promise. He just wanted to get far, far enough away that he's out of the reach of Pharaoh. Again, just kind of self-protection. But showing up in Midian becomes consequential, doesn't it? Because here's the fourth mark. It's his marriage. Verse 16, his marriage. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. I love the way this starts out. I love this. Here we're going to talk about his marriage, and it doesn't begin with he met a woman. It says he met a priest. So I take from this that in his marriage, he finds a very good family, a very good family. It doesn't begin here with the seven daughters. It starts with the priest. The priest in this land, just east of Egypt, and it's in Midian. And just exactly what is the background of Midian? Well, if you, if you were to go back, you could read about it in Genesis chapter 25. After Abraham's wife Sarah died, Abraham remarries a woman by the name of Keturah and they bear a son together and his name is Midian. This is a direct descendant, line of descent back to Abraham. Now he goes there to flee. God sends him there in his self-protecting fleeing because that's where God wants him. Where's God? Do you see it? Even his fear isn't random. And he runs in not just to any old Midianite, but the priest of Midian. Or at least the daughters of the priest of Midian. The, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Oh, how consequential. Since this man is likely a direct descendant from Abraham, it is likely he's not just a random priest of false gods. He's probably a priest in the line of the true God, directing people to the true God of his family, the God that Abraham followed. It's just the right family. It's a perfect family. There's no random choices in here. He lands at the right place at the right time with the right man who has seven daughters. Are you kidding me? Seven daughters, (laughs) right? There's nothing random here. And they're shepherdesses. And that's really important. Shepherding's going to become Moses' employment. What do the Egyptians hate? Shepherds. They loathe them. But shepherding would be the ultimate activity of Moses as he would shepherd the people of Israel. And actually, we know that the Lord loves shepherds because the Lord even says of himself, the Lord is our shepherd. He's got the right family. Expresses some good manners. You see in verse 17, then the shepherds came down and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered the flock. This should sound familiar as well. It's similar to Genesis 29 when Jacob is at the well and Rachel's coming to water the sheep and he moves the stone off the well and moves along the the other shepherds so that Rachel can water the sheep and provides. And then she goes home and tells her father, hey, there's this guy. Same thing here. He no doubt scatters those shepherds who are trying to take advantage of these women and he provides for them. It's an upstanding man. Verse 18 tells us in his marriage he gets some good in-laws. Verse 18, when they came to Ruel, their father, 
He said, why have you come back so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us. Now, how do they see him? He doesn't look Jewish. He looks Egyptian. An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. And Ruel said to his daughters, then where is he? You didn't bring this guy home? Well, you want us to bring him? Yeah, this is the kind of guy you bring home. (laughs) Pay attention. There are guys you don't bring home. This one you do. He does the right things. He's got the right manners. He's a good, upstanding person. And this isn't characteristic of Egyptians. There's something about this guy. And by the way, I don't think that Ruel, whose name also is Jethro, we'll learn in chapter 18, also goes by the name of Hobab. We'll learn in the book of Note Numbers. He doesn't just look at this guy as someone that they should be kind to and compassionate to and hospitable to because if you look, he says, invite him to have something to eat in verse 20. Then verse 21, Moses was willing to dwell with the man. Don't pass over that too quickly. That is a massive understatement. Willing to dwell with him? What does that mean? This means Moses was willing to leave everything behind and never go back to it and make himself a part of Ruel's family. That's why Ruel, then it says, gave his daughter Zipporah, we would likely think she might be the oldest of the daughters, to Moses. He was willing to live with them. He was willing to forsake everything in order to be a part of that family. Left all of Egypt behind. All the power, royalty, provision, all gone. Then he fathers good children here, verse 22. She, Zipporah, gave birth to a son and he, Moses, named him Gershom. This is really consequential. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Does he mean Midian? Does he mean Egypt? How does he see Egypt now? That's a foreign land. Who is he? Not an Egyptian. He's a Hebrew. I've been in a foreign land. I think that's amazing. This is the sign of Moses' conversion. This is the sign of Moses' faith where he was willing to take everything and leave it behind and commit himself to be a Hebrew, God's people. You say, well, how do you know that? Because that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, think about this. This is really profound. By faith, that is complete confidence in God, absolute trust in God. Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He left it behind. Why? Because of his faith, because of his relationship to God, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. You say, well, I thought he fled in fear. He fled in fear. He knew his life was in danger, but once he reached Midian, there was no way he was going back. He was totally committed to the purposes of God. 
He considered the reproach of the Messiah greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. What moved him to become a part of the Midianite family that's directly related to Abraham? He's a Hebrew. He will represent the Hebrews because he's awaiting the one who would come and ultimately deliver. That was actually in the mind of Moses. He's now a man of faith, being driven by faith. He was looking to the reward. What's the reward? Just going back to the promised land? No, the return of Messiah. Ultimately, he knew, he saw his place in the pivotal plans of God. And by faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. He left Egypt, yes, initially in fear, but he left Egypt, not ultimately in fear. He left in faith, in trust. That's really profound, isn't it? There's one final fifth mark of Moses' pedigree I want you to look at. It's the one we've been hearing about, but we haven't seen explicitly yet. It's God. God. Verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days. What many days? All of Israel's suffering. All of the days of Moses' birth and upbringing and adulthood and marriage. In all of those days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed. They groaned. It literally, they groaned because of the bondage. It did not go away when that king died. It continued. And they cried out. Would you notice it does not say here they cried out to God. They just cried out. We have no indication that the Israelites were thinking on God. They just want relief. They cry out for help. But we're not told that they cry out to God. And the text is very clear that they cry out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. It's not that they're begging God, but their cry actually then rose up to God. That's the setting. But I want you to notice what is emphasized next. In fact, verse, the end of verse 23 is the first time God has actually even been mentioned in this chapter. And then notice how many times he's mentioned Verse 24, so God heard their groanings and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. Do you see it? God hears. God hears. That's what it says. God heard their groaning. Back in chapter two, verse 15, Pharaoh heard about Moses and wanted to kill Moses And when Pharaoh heard about Moses, who was actually hearing? God was hearing. This is not to suggest that God was deaf for decades and now all of a sudden he woke up. God heard in order to act. God remembered. He remembered. What did he remember? His covenant. 
He didn't just remember Moses and Israel. He remembered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a promise. And in Genesis 15, when God passed between the pieces of the offering that Abraham had made, he was pledging his own existence to keep the covenant. God remembered. This is what God always does. He remembers not just you and your plight and your circumstances and the situations. God remembers his promise to you. He acts in accord with his promise that he has staked his own existence on. God remembered. This is not the only time God has remembered when the floods had covered the earth because of humanity's sin right at the middle of that account of the flood. In Genesis chapter 8, it says God remembered Noah and saved him. In Genesis 19, when God was destroying the cities of the valley, Sodom and Gomorrah, God remembered Abraham, and so he preserved Lot. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 19, there was a barren woman who was being ridiculed by another wife of the one husband they both shared, and she was begging with God, and God remembered her, and she conceived and bore the prophet Samuel, who would be the consequential priest, judge, and prophet to anoint David as the great messianic king. This is what happens when God remembers his promise. Salvation happens. God sees. This is really interesting because throughout the chapter, a lot of people are seeing a lot of things. In chapter 2, verse 2, the woman conceived conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was good. When she saw that he was good, God was seeing. In chapter 2, verse 5, when the daughter of Pharaoh saw the basket... God was seeing. In chapter 2, verse 6, when the daughter of Pharaoh saw the child in the ark, God was seeing. In chapter 2, verse 11, when Moses saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, God was seeing. In chapter 2, verse 12, when Moses saw there was no one around, God was actually watching. God was in the midst of everything that everyone else saw. He was there. He was seeing In verse 25 of chapter 2, God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice. That is the word to know. He knew them. He knew. He didn't just perceive something was happening. He knew. He knows what will happen next. He knows what will happen with whom and why. In chapter 2, verse 4, when Moses' sister stood at a distance to know what was going to happen, God already knew. In chapter 2, verse 14, when Moses was afraid that the matter of his killing the Egyptian had become known, God knew what was going to happen. This is the greatest piece of every pedigree. God. God, he knows. He hears. He remembers. He sees. Our cries are not inconsequential. They're not inconspicuous. They're providential. They're prominent to him, even when we're not crying to him. When he acts, he acts in accordance with a promise that he will actually move all of the universe in order to keep. When he responds, it will be a response because he remembers his promise that he has made. When he involves himself overtly in any circumstance, it is because he has known everything and he knows how it will all end in the end. 
This is why when you read the opening account in the New Testament of the birth of Jesus, if you were to pay attention carefully, it parallels the pedigree of Moses' life in very significant ways. After 400 years of not hearing the voice of God, all of a sudden the voice of God is heard through the prophet John the Baptist announcing the coming of Messiah. Similarly, as we see here, the Lord sees. The Lord remembers because here a child would be born to a virgin from the right tribe in Israel and the perfect time in human history and he would be healthy and without blemish and he would be providentially protected from the murderous plots intended to slaughter all the male children. He would be raised in an unlikely place that any significant leader would ever come from. And when he witnessed the plight of God's people as an adult, he never wavered from his father's purposes. He wasn't, he wasn't going to take things into his own hands. He was going to accomplish the father's will. The Lord remembered. And the Lord heard. God was remembering his purpose. God is always seeing what's happened. He knows everything. And the life of the Lord Jesus parallels this. You say, ah, that's because Jesus is the new Moses. And I would say, let's not denigrate Jesus like that. He's not a new Moses. He's Messiah. He's greater than Moses. If Moses was the most consequential person in Israel's history, then who is this man who not only parallels similarities, but exceeds them? in the most extreme ways so that every eye in Israel would see this man is the one Moses actually was looking to, the Messiah. Which should put our place in human history and your life, wherever it is, in some perspective. Right? He sees. He remembers. He knows It's not inconsequential. You're in the plan of God's providence. Who is God? Well, he's always present with his people. And what did we learn about him here? He's always preparing for his people, isn't he? Always, always. This is the God you are to have faith in. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that our hearts would not look elsewhere, that our hearts would look to Christ, that our hearts would not just look at our circumstances and groan, but our hearts would look to you in our groaning and call out in faith, that we would see all the trials of life as preparation for greater purposes, perhaps that we can't know and we can't see, but we are confident that you know and you see. You see, you hear, you remember, you know. I pray every unbelieving heart will be stirred to look to you. God, for your glory, accomplish salvation in the hearts of the unbelieving and engender greater trust and confidence in those who are wavering perhaps in faith struggling with your purposes. Help them. We pray for this and we trust you in it.
In the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.